In your downtime, you might feel that your body is not doing much. You might be sitting down, having a cup of tea, driving or taking a bus. But inside your bloodstream, billions of immune cells are working hard to protect you from bacteria, viruses, fungi, toxins, anything that could disturb your body's delicate balance. Sounds exhausting, but how does this immune protection work? Today, we meet a scientific detective who is helping to answer that question. You're listening to Medical Minds, the podcast that takes you inside the labs at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. I'm your host, Dr. Vivian Richter, and with me here is Professor Stuart Tangy, head of the Immunology and Immunodeficiency Lab at Garvin. Welcome, Stu. Hi, Viv. Great to be here. Stuart, I think most of us have a general idea, but for those who don't know, what is immunology? Immunology is the study of our immune system, and that's one of the body's systems. But unlike our heart or our nervous system, the immune system is everywhere. And I was at my daughter's school recently talking to the kids about science, and I said to them, what is the immune system? And I was thrilled to know that they realized that it was everywhere. And the reason that is, is because it's a force field that we have to develop and strengthen over time to protect us against infection, no matter how we're going to come across that infection. Stu, what inspired you for a career in immunology? When I was young, I always liked puzzles. In fact, I actually wanted to be a police officer, a detective, because I wanted to solve things like crimes. But those were the days when you had to be a particular height to be in the police force, and I was never (laughs) going to be tall enough to be a policeman. I also really liked forensic science, and that was sort of coming to age then, but it's nothing like what we know it is now. So there wasn't really a university course to do forensic science. So I did a degree called Bachelor of Biomedical Science, and I was learning about biochemistry and microbiology. But then we started learning about immunology from a young professor who had just started at the university, and he just had this buzz and this excitement to his lectures. And what was riveting was you'd ask the lecturer questions, and he would say, we don't know. And it's not that he didn't know, it's that we as a field didn't know Whereas it sort of felt we knew everything that we were going to learn about biochemistry and microbiology, which obviously isn't true. But the way immunology was taught, it was dynamic, it was fresh, it was vibrant, and it was unknown, um, much more than any other scientific subject that I was being taught when I was at university. So it was an exciting time for immunology. It was a terrifically exciting time. I've got to say, this was the late 80s, early 90s. So access to scientific journals was not like what it is today. I remember I would go to the medical library at Sydney University because the uni I was at didn't have a medical library. And you'd wait for months for journal subscriptions to arrive. And you'd just be there feverishly poring over journal table of contents to see what's new. The reality is it wasn't that new. It was published six months ago. That was the way science was communicated 30 years ago. It's not like a click of a button now where you can download a science article or there's press releases about science. You had to really dig in the library to find out what it was. And that was also exciting because it added to the whole mystery of how do you find out stuff? You've got to really look for it and dig for it. And it takes me back to, again, when I was a kid, I just wanted to find bits and pieces, put them together, solve a problem and tell a story. Sounds like that took real commitment. <laughs> it was. It was It was fun. I didn't feel like it was a chore, though, and I think that's what I've been really lucky about. I've been fortunate to work in a career, which is almost a hobby. You know, I'm very passionate about science. I love many aspects of my job. I'm blessed that this is my career. It's not without challenges, obviously, but it was fun to 
and probably nerdy to sit in a library and read science articles or stand over a photocopier and, again, photocopy articles, seeing it come out and think this is going to be really interesting and exciting. Today we have immediate access to so much information. How has that changed science? I think for researchers in Australia, that's made a huge difference because these days everything is online, which is terrific and immediate. So you can be on top of the literature straight away. I don't have to wait for weeks to months for those journals to come in. The other transformation in my mind is the nature of my work has always been very collaborative. But a while ago, you'd have to literally send letters or faxes to people talking to them about, do you want to collaborate on this? But now research is global and almost in real time, despite time differences, you send emails. My best collaborators are actually overseas. We meet, we chat, we Zoom, we Skype. Uh, We catch up all the time and we do experiments together in real time. So we're solving these puzzles that I find really interesting and challenging together at the same time with a shared goal of solving a problem without having to feel like you're always playing catch up because something similar was published six months ago. Stu, I heard the first project you worked on in a research lab was using a bee toxin. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Viv. For my honours project, I was working on what's called an immunotoxin. And what that is, was using an antibody, a monoclonal antibody, to target a particular cancer. In this case, it was targeting a myeloma. And the antibody itself was the vehicle by which to deliver a toxin. And the toxin we used was a protein called melatonin, which is the toxin from the European honeybee. So what we're doing, we were binding melatonin to this antibody and using that as a silver bullet to try to kill cancer cells. And that's really interesting because these days, the biggest development in treating human diseases has been the application of immunotherapy for various types of cancers. And we're now seeing these fantastic outcomes in patients who have had otherwise very life-threatening, if not fatal malignancies, having a new lease on life because we've been able to target the immune system and improve the way the immune system behaves by immunotherapies and ramping up the immune system. And it's sort of interesting to reflect on my honours year where we were sort of doing something at a very, very low level, but that was the principle of using aspects of the immune system to target malignancies. So what is immunotherapy? How does that actually work? This is another aspect that I find amazing about immunology. Not only is immunology itself a discipline and a study of the immune system, but the immune system itself makes a whole lot of tools uh, that protect us. And these, one of these tools is called antibodies. Now we use antibodies to treat many diseases. And one of these, of course, is different types of cancer. So these monoclonal antibodies are given to patients and what they do is they target particular immune cells and they basically turn them on so that they can become very effective at recognizing and killing cancer cells, whereas before that they were sort of held in a bit of a dormant state. So the immunotherapy is really ramping up the functionality of the immune system to really clear out cancer cells. So you started your research career in Australia, and after that, I heard you went in search for the California dream. Tell us about that. That's right, Viv. I grew up uh, with my family in the southern suburbs of Sydney. I uh, spent a lot of time on the coast. Uh, I was in the surf club and things like this, so I really loved the beaches. Uh, my parents were very much into the Beach Boys and that sort of West Coast sound. So I was quite drawn to California uh, as a kid and as a young person. But then during my 
PhD, there was some terrific science being done at a place called the DNAX Research Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology, which is in Northern California. I really wanted to go and work there. So I got in touch with one of the heads of the lab there. So luckily he offered me a, a postdoctoral research position there. So I went and joined his lab and it was the dream. I was living in California. I was spending weekends out and about around the area there, which is just a spectacular part of the world, that whole Pacific Northwest. And then during the week and many weekends, I'd be working at this institute, which was just a hub of activity. Some of the biggest discoveries in immunology came out of this place in the 80s and the 90s. And it was frankly overwhelming. I was relatively young. I worked in a small university department. And now I was sort of dropped in the middle of all the action. And I remember my uh, supervisor telling me, not in a threatening way, basically saying, the success that you'll achieve here is really up to you. There's no experiment that can't be done. There's no service we can't provide you. There's no opportunity that you can't take. So it was really up to me to make the best of this situation, which was terrifying, but also incredibly inspiring because I knew if I was going to do anything, now was my time because basically I had unfettered access to smart people, technology, projects, science, and it was fantastic. What project did you end up sinking your teeth into? I was drawn to human immunology and a lot of research was being done in mouse models of immunology, but this was an opportunity to work in a human immunology department. So there was a discovery of the cause of a very rare genetic disease. And that finding serendipitously actually informed a project that I was working on significantly at the time. So through collaboration with a colleague in Boston, I started working on patients with this particular rare genetic disease, which is called XLP. And the problem with this disease is that the affected individuals who are only boys, it's an X-linked disease, so it only presents in males, they're healthy until they get exposed to a virus called Epstein-Barr virus, which is actually incredibly common. It causes glandular fever, and it's actually very hard to avoid. So these kids are healthy until they get exposed to EBV, and then that sort of sets off a ticking time bomb. They develop dreadful disease, their immune system can't handle the viral infection, and they can have really severe, even fatal outcomes. Stu, when we're talking about these rare genetic conditions, what is rare? How many kids are actually affected by them? So for XLP, that has an incidence of about one in 500,000 to one in a million males because it only affects boys. So that's very rare. In Australia, there might be one or two dozen cases. However, when it comes to genetic immune diseases, there's over 500 genes have been found that can cause these types of conditions. So whilst one of those is obviously very rare... Uh, when you combine all of those 500 genetic diseases, they're not as rare as you think. In fact, they're more likely to affect, say, one in 5,000 to one in 10,000 individuals. And even though these conditions might individually be quite rare, the effect on the individual patient is extremely profound, right? That's right. If these conditions can be really severe, they typically present very early in life, uh, often within the first 12 months of life. And it's typically things like recurrent, ongoing refractory infections, bacterial infections, viral infections. So kids are often in and out of hospital. It's the sort of situation where GPs will say, I've never seen this case before. So that's the sort of presentation that they have. Stu, tell us about the CIRCA program that you started. So we started the Clinical Immunogenomics Research Consortium of Australasia, CIRCA, back in 2015. We got together and realised there was an opportunity here to crowdsource expertise. So we brought together scientists like myself, 
clinicians across many of the hospitals in initially in Sydney, but now across Australia, geneticists and other research groups who could sort of work together as a collective, as a collaborative unit to really try to solve some of these really challenging cases from a diagnostic perspective, but then also hopefully have those findings translate to ways where you could give specific or better treatments for these kids or families. There's no doubt that the work we've done in Circa has changed lives. We've diagnosed many patients who up until we set up Circa were undiagnosed. So we've been able to inform families of exactly what disease they have. That's also led to immediate plans for treatment. If we know what the genetic cause of a disease is, we often know what the best treatment is. These may be very intensive treatments like a bone marrow transplant, which is itself not trivial, but we know that if you've got this disease, you have to have a bone marrow transplant. Other cases we've been able to diagnose additional members in the family, and that's obviously been very important for themselves, but also possibly family planning perspectives. And we've also been able to advise clinicians that they might consider trying alternative treatments, which are more specific for the symptoms that are arising because we're actually treating the genetic cause rather than just treating the symptoms. And how does it feel to have these impacts on patient lives? It is pretty amazing. And whilst I don't actually see the patients themselves, or I'm not there when the information about the outcomes is shared, it is pretty gratifying to know that the research program that my lab's been running and the research consortia that we've set up is having a positive effect. And fundamentally, that's why we do medical research. I did have the good fortune a few years ago of meeting a young man who we had diagnosed years before, and he was only eight or nine at that time, but now he was 10 years older and he'd had a bone marrow transplant. He was healthy. He was in school. He was about to start university. And just knowing that if we hadn't had those understandings at the time, his career or life trajectory would have been very, very different. So what does this research into these rare immune diseases, what does that mean for the rest of us? So each of us has a unique immune system. Most of us are healthy and fine, but then occasionally uh, we'll be struck down quite severely with some infection. COVID-19 really brought this out in the fact that SARS-CoV-2 was a virus that humans had never been exposed to before. And suddenly people from all walks of life, all ages were being infected. And we realized that whilst it was clear that there was a particular demographic being affected by SARS-CoV-2, so clearly the elderly men were more likely to get really sick. There were other cases of people who were otherwise healthy, who were suddenly presenting with severe and in some cases fatal COVID-19. And that gave us the opportunity through this very large international global collective called the COVID human genetic effort to really start studying the, the general population and why the incidence and impact of SARS-CoV-2 infection could be really severe in otherwise healthy individuals. And that actually led to a whole lot of fascinating discoveries about what the immune system needs to protect us against SARS-CoV-2 and, and other viruses and how that could inform some treatments. And that has led to, I think, some of the biggest understandings of the basic issues around host pathogen interaction, so how the human interacts with SARS-CoV-2, and it's informed treatments for people who have severe COVID-19. So how do these discoveries of the immune system, how do they lead to treatments? What's the process there? In the context of SARS-CoV-2, a lot of it was empirical. There was an observation, and one of them, for example, was that there's a, a chemical made by the immune system 
called type 1 interferon. And it was found early on that if you had a defect that prevented your immune systems from making type 1 interferon or that they couldn't respond to it very well, you often had very severe COVID-19. So luckily, type 1 interferon is actually a drug. It's been used to treat other viral infections and some malignancies. So people started using type 1 interferon, and in some cases it was successful. So that, that was one example. Translating discoveries from immunological research into treatments is a fascinating field. And again, this comes back to something I said before. The immune system isn't just this defense force against pathogens. It can be really harnessed and leveraged because of the components of it. So it's possible to make monoclonal antibodies to improve cancer. We can use monoclonal antibodies as treatments for inflammatory diseases. We can put back molecules that are missing. The classic example is diabetes. You don't have enough insulin, you treat it with insulin. There are other immune diseases where a part of your immune system is missing, uh, and that can be replaced. Understanding how the immune system works is, is also really relevant for precision medicine. From the genetic aspect of immune diseases, which is what I work in, understanding the genetic cause of a disease really opens up opportunities for therapies. So there's a disease that I work on, which is called activated PR3 kinase delta syndrome, or APDS for short. And the genetic cause there, an enzyme having too much activity. And this is a very well-studied enzyme, well before it was known to cause this human disease, because it's really fundamental for many aspects of cell biology. So fortuitously, this enzyme has been targeted to treat other diseases, particularly B-cell malignancies. There's several pharmaceutical companies who have developed specific inhibitors for this enzyme, and that's now being used to treat these rare patients with APDS. And there's many examples like that where you actually treat the genetic cause rather than treating the symptoms. So instead of doing general immunosuppression, for example, with steroids, which can have a lot of off-target effects, you can just target the pathway that's the root cause of the disease and hopefully just modulate that specifically rather than non-specifically targeting a whole lot of immune pathways that can then have their own complications. Stu, you've spent much of your research career at the Garvin Institute. Can you tell us why it's such a powerhouse for immunology research? So immunology has always been a hugely successful discipline of medical research across Australia, and that's been the case probably since the 60s because of some pioneers back in the day. And that's still the case today. So we're very lucky that there's been a really great collection of individuals and colleagues, collaborators who have come to Garvin over the last 20 years to work in the immunology space. Garvin immunology has changed a lot since I've been there, but the constant has been the collegiality, the collaborations, the brains trust, that critical mass that you need to have really creative, innovative, dynamic research environment that can be done with your colleagues or in your own lab, but knowing that you're contributing to something bigger than the individual parts Garvin's always been at the forefront of medical research across Australia and internationally, and the immunology research that's being done there is certainly world-class. There's terrific scientists, terrific leaders, but for me, working in the genomic space, Garvin really is a powerhouse in, in genomic technologies, adopting new techniques to study the genome, where we can combine bioinformatics and genomic biology with what I do, which is cellular immunology, and it comes together to try to solve these puzzles that I've always been intrigued about since I was a kid into how things work, why things work, and why don't they work when things go wrong and how can we fix it? And then if we can take that information and then transfer it to the clinic and see 
the application of research for improving treatments or outcomes for patient, that's just gold. Stu, for those listening today, what can we do in our everyday life to help our immune system out? Well, being an immunologist, I'm a huge advocate for vaccination. So I strongly encourage people to get vaccinated, to get their kids vaccinated, to be up to date with their vaccine boosters. And I think we just need to look back a couple of hundred years ago, life expectancy was much shorter than what it is today. It was you know, 30, 40, 50 years of age. If we were having this conversation then, there's a very good chance that I may not be alive because there were so many infectious diseases. But these days, with the ongoing development of vaccines, many of those infectious diseases are now preventable. Stu, when you're thinking back at the boy who wanted to be a detective, do you think we'll ever completely solve the puzzle of the immune system? I'd really like to think we will. However... COVID has shown us that as much as we know, there's a hell of a lot that we don't. For me, there's just these stark observations. We could be vaccinated against, say, smallpox, and you just need one dose of a smallpox vaccine and you're protected for life. SARS-CoV-2 showed us, though, you can be continually exposed, you can be vaccinated, but we're still getting sick. The way your immune system responds to one pathogen can be very different and effective to the way it responds to another one. COVID has just made that stark. We know a lot. There's no doubt about it. We know so much more now than we did even when I started 30 years ago. But that's a stark reminder that we don't know everything. The mystery will continue. Hopefully, we will get resolution around a lot of it, but there's always going to be unknowns. And the beauty of research in one way is that as many questions as it answers, it often throws up new questions. And for people like me who love the unknown, all those puzzles, it keeps us going. And it's rewarding because you're solving one problem, but you're opening a door to another set of questions, which you didn't know was there. And that's the door you go through next. Okay, Stu. So this is the part of the podcast where we get to find out all sorts of things about you. It's called The Fast Five. Are you up for it? Sure am. What do you do in your downtime? I have, uh, I have three kids aged nearly 12, 14 and 16. So I don't have a lot of downtime, but... I spend a lot of my non-work time with my kids. Favourite movie? Well, my favourite movie is Flying High, uh, and that almost ended my relationship with my current wife. (laughs) (laughs) You have to tell us why. Well, when we were dating initially, I thought I'd impress her by saying, oh, let's watch my favourite movie. Let's just say she didn't think it was the best movie ever made. You're still together. You got over it. (laughs) Oh, we're still very much together, but she still hasn't seen all of Flying High. (laughs) Stu, do you have any secret skills? Well, I don't know if you'd call it a skill, but uh, when I was a kid, I always wanted to learn how to play guitar. But one of my sons started learning guitar himself a number of years ago. So I thought, why not? So I started learning guitar about six years ago. What do you like to rip out on your guitar? I don't mind playing a few Cure songs or I really quite like Neil Young's Rocking in the Free World. If you could be a movie character, who would you be? I certainly do like Indiana Jones, some of those characters from the early Star Wars movies. So I think something like that would be pretty cool. I think Indiana Jones would be pretty hard to beat. Or James Bond. What's the first concert you ever went to? Midnight Oil in 1993 at the Sydney Entertainment Centre. But my mum reminds me that she took me to see Johnny Farnham years before that when I was a kid. But for some reason, I don't remember that one. (laughs) Love that. Professor Stuart Tangy, thank you so much for joining us on Medical Minds. 
It's been an absolute pleasure, Viv. Thanks very much. If you'd like to know more about Professor Stuart Tangy's research or the work we do at Garvin, head over to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Dr. Vivian Richter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.